0: Let's let's begin with the word of prayer. And by, by the way, this is going to be a little more academic tonight. I want to talk about how can you make a judgment about beauty and art, and and I think I can lay some foundations, and then those things have to be applied, and the application is going to usually mean controversy and discussion, because the, because the application is often um, about nuancing, and particular uh, artistic endeavor and so on. So. We just have to recognize that. I just want to lay a foundation for some thoughts about this and draw heavily on C.S. Lewis. I'm going to stay in my lane. I don't know much, but I know a little bit about him. Um, Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is one evening quickly upon us. Quickly it will be forgotten. But I pray there might be some things that transpire this evening that will linger along with us. And I know for that to happen, then you need to be involved in the transaction. I know that every heart here has different concerns, uh, sorrows, joys, um, different insights, different backgrounds. It's impossible to believe one person could ever speak in a way that every heart could be touched. It just, it's nonsense. Unless you're involved in the transaction. And one time your son was by the side of the Sea of Galilee and he saw a bunch of hungry folks. And he had five loaves and two fish, crumbs, for the multitude that were there. But he took them, he broke them, he blessed them, he multiplied them, and everybody left satisfied. Would your Holy Spirit please do something like that for us here this evening? Would he take the crumbs that are offered and would he multiply them and bless them so that each person would leave saying, I think I've got a handle on some of this stuff. Make us so that we won't be arrogant in our self-referential judgments. Make us so that we'll have humility, that we would be teachable, that we could lean into exhibitions of beauty, artistic endeavor, that we could think about these things well, and therefore we could think about them and describe what we're seeing in a way that might be persuasive, that other people could come in to that understanding of beauty because we believe, Lord, that you have chosen to woo us to yourself through the beautiful expressions that you have demonstrated in your world, even as Darren talked about them last night, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth showeth your handiwork, and it takes our breath away, and we're grateful. So we pray to this end, for Christ's sake, amen. We make judgments about beauty all the time, and I think that those judgments should be objective. We live in an objective world. That means there are objects that are out there that we can think about, and we as thinkers are subjects. And there needs to be some sort of correspondence between the subjective impression and the objective reality. And Lewis was deeply committed to this. So if we want to talk about judgments of beauty, we first, I think, have to lay a foundation for how we make judgments about anything. And if we don't have that as a foundation, we could just become self-referential, don't care about the objective reality, And it's dangerous to our soul. So Lewis wrote about this in a particular book called The Abolition of Man. Um, It was interesting to me that this particular book, he sets forth this concept of uh, objective thought. It was was, um, Anthony Trollope who said, only the preacher can compel people to sit still and be tortured. I know this is not true. We professors do it far better. We hold grades over students' heads and so on. But artists can sometimes do it too. They can think the world owes them a living because they did artistic work, but they don't really think uh, uh, objectively about the artwork that they do. So how do you actually engage in making a point that is not self-referential, that has merit, and it can persuade without manipulating? And I think Lewis's approach was always to get shoulder to shoulder with his readers and describe some objective reality out there, to describe it as best he could, defining, describing, and so on, so that the person would become fascinated by that thing. Lewis could leave and didn't make the person dependent upon him, but got them fascinated with the thing itself. Chesterton put it this way, The world will never starve for want of wonders, only for want of wonder. Begin to create the wonder, and there you go. Evelyn Underhill was the one who said, Teaching is one person loving something publicly. Artists, good art, I think, should have that element in it. It's one person loving something publicly and giving us the gift of the artistic expression so that we could enter into that. So the background of the abolition of man, again, Lewis was an objectivist. He believed in subjects, or knowers and feelers, and objects are things to know about. There are material objects, empirically perceived, but there are also objects of thought set apart by definitions from which inferentially developed conclusions might be drawn. For Lewis, truth was not reality. Truth is what I think about reality when I think accurately about it. This is a podium. That's a true statement. Why? Because there's a reality that supports the claim. This is not an elephant. True, because there isn't a reality to support the claim. this is an elephant, false. Why? Elephants exist. This is not one. Uh, Claims are falsified by the fact there's no reality to support the claim. Um, I can give you an example of this. I was in the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College. My office was there, and I had to go to the restroom one day. So I went in, and I I had to make a full deposit, so I went in the stall, And I heard somebody come into the restroom. I finished up my duty and I came out and there was a woman standing at the mirror fixing her makeup. Now clearly she started screaming at me for being in the women's restaurant. So now we have a conceptual difference of opinion here. I won the argument with one word. I pointed and said urinals. She screamed and ran out of the bathroom. There was no objective reality to support her impression. And consequently, that's the way it works. Lewis's objectivism must not be confused, by the way, too, with Enlightenment rationalism. His views are rooted in the much older soil of classical and scholastic thought and are wide enough to include both Eastern and Western cultural support. Lewis gives evidence of in the appendix of the abolition of man because the books he uses and quotes most frequently in that book are Aristotle's... Uh, Nicomachean Ethics and Confucius's uh, uh, Analects. He's using Eastern and Western thought. The concept of objectivity is not a tyrannical, Western, Eurocentric thought. And Lewis makes that very clear. People who make those claims, they're, they're either misinformed or they're very limited in what they're reading. So consequently, Lewis had a growing concern about what he called subjectivism. And that's when the subject no longer is responsive to the object, and they're creating reality from themselves, like a spider spinning its web out from itself. So once the subject is untethered from the object, or what philosopher Josiah Royce called one's ontological predicates, truth dies, and we drift into what Lewis called the poison of subjectivism. It's self-referential. It's utilitarian as opposed to being situated in an objective world and becoming self-aware and empathetic. If you go back and study the doctrine of sin, um, basically every definition of sin in the New Testament is man playing God of his own life. Um, The the Greek word for sin, hamartia, from which the the, uh, theological category hamartiology, the study of sin comes from, it's an archer's term. The archer takes the arrow from the quiver. Knocks it in the bow, shoots it. If he missed the target, it was called the hamartia. Romans 3:23. For all have sinned and what? Fallen, fallen short of the glory of God. We assumed a position we were unqualified for. We're playing God. We're subjects no longer responsive to the objective reality. You've got First John chapter three verse four. Sin is lawlessness. Uh, the Greek word for law is nomos. It's not anti namos antinomian, against the law. It's anomos. It's without the law. We become anarchistic. And we make these judgments, and we don't realize that basically we're involved in this very process of isolating ourselves. Sin at its core is, is estranging. We get estranged from God. We get estranged from one another. Sin at its core is anarchistic, and anarchistic people make bad community people. And consequently, we also estrange ourselves from the reality that's around us. And we have to be cautious that we don't uh, carry that on in in our self-referential judgments about beauty and art and so on. So The Abolition of Man is a book that Lewis is writing concerned about that. It was originally the Rydell Memorial Lectures given by Lewis at Durham University. And he begins by deconstructing the embedded assumptions he found throughout a sixth form, English grammar book. What's sixth form? It'd be the equivalent of our 11th and 12th grade in America. And these guys had written this grammar book, and they have these embedded assumptions that were very self-referential, very divorced from the objective reality, and yet these guys are still making judgments themselves. Uh, the influence of the abolition of man when Lewis wrote it, um, if you've seen B.F. Skinner's Beyond Freedom and Dignity, he talks about conditioners. He draws that term from Lewis's as the abolition of man. He's writing in reaction to Lewis. So if you know that that book, it's interesting that it was The Abolition of Man that prompted that. Mortimer Adler included it in the great books of the Western world in 1968. That means Adler put The Abolition of Man up there with books like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. uh, Socrates didn't write Plato. But um, um, also Shakespeare, Chaucer, Milton. And it's very interesting to me. And Lewis thought it was among his three best books. He wrote, The argument of the abolition of man is he begins to argue for what he calls the doctrine of objective value. The belief that certain things are really true because there's an objective reality to support the truth claim. Certain things are really true and others really false. The kind of thing we are and the kind of thing the universe is. He uses a shorthand term, the Tao. The reason why he uses an Eastern term is because he wants people to see this is not a Western concept. It is a human concept, and we need to uh, lean into it. We have to adjust the scoliosis of our souls to the plumb line of reality and our emotions, our sentiments, our reason, our will and moral life, and in our aesthetic judgments also. Uh, Thomas Traherne talked about just sentiments, rendering to a thing its due. If we see good art or beauty and we don't render it to its its due, Either it means we're ignorant or it means that we're not being just to that particular thing. And we need to bring our perception up to the level of the thing, giving it its due. Augustine called it ordo amoris, ordered love. Moral responsibility would be no different for the Christian than the non-Christian if we both live in an objective world. The idea of beauty should be no different from the non-Christian and the Christian but we have to be able to see the beauty and then be able to describe it. Lewis observed that Christian moral principles are not different from moral principles per se, and that the real problem is how to obey them. To ask whether the rest of the Christian faith matters when we have Christ's ethics presupposes a world of unfallen men with no need for redemption. The rest of the Christian faith is a means of carrying out instead of merely being able to discourse on the ethics we already know. So I can have a moral understanding as a non-believer, but can I live up to that moral understanding without the aid of Christ? And so this goes on. So anyway, these, these two authors who wrote the book, uh, Lewis calls them Gaius and Titius, and they begin their book with this, with this uh, uh, illustration they draw from Dorothy Wordsworth's um, Grassmere Journals from 1803. So Dorothy Wordsworth with her brother William Wordsworth was traveling with Samuel Taylor Coleridge. They came to the Coral Inn Waterfall on the River Clyde. So here, Norm, this is my stick figure stuff now. Is that all right? So here's, here's the waterfall. How's that look? Right, let's put a tree up there too, huh? You know, does that look like a tree? Not very well, but that's all, okay. So here's the waterfall. And Coleridge came to this waterfall, and there were two tourists there. Oops. He said, I don't know. And here's Coleridge. Norm, I need to take your class on drawing stick figures. So the first tourist looked at the waterfall and called it pretty. The second tourist looked at it and called it Sublime. This is a waterfall that approximates the Platonic ideal of waterfall-ness. Coleridge endorsed the first and rejected the second. And Gaius and Titius said Coleridge had no right to make that judgment. For these people were not saying anything about the waterfall, but only something about their own feelings. Well, now we've got a major problem. Because Gaius and Titius are saying the objective of reality doesn't matter. It's just the subject. And consequently, if you have subjective approaches to these things, what you say about art and beauty doesn't make any difference uh, to anybody else. Expert opinion doesn't make any difference. And you begin to assert in, 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 in an arrogant sort of way, really, what you think. But where's the real problem? The real problem is not merely that Gaius and Titius have separated the object of reality from the subject of response. But when they say Coleridge had no right to make that judgment, what are they doing? They're making a judgment. And what's the basis for their judgment? At least Samuel Taylor Coleridge had an objective reality that monitored how he decided what he thought about these two people. By the way, did they say anything negative about the waterfall? No. One just said something more robust than the other, right? So, Elisa, uh, this is just what you were talking about in your seminar. They're using a more robust descriptive statement about the object of reality. But the question then goes on to say, well, on, if, the, if that's the case, then, then uh, if, if Gaius and Titius are making a judgment and it's divorced from reality, what's the basis of their judgment? In the second chapter of this book, Lewis goes on to say that he thinks that their, their, their standard for judgment is instinct. Maybe they're, they're saying, well, I can judge because um, uh, instinct is telling me to do this. But Lewis argues instincts say different things. They're, they're competing. You have an instinct because you're hungry. You have an instinct because you're thirsty. You have an instinct because you're tired. You have an instinct because you, you feel like you need to do something for your job so that you can make money so you can provide for your family or something like that. What's the hierarchy by which you judge which instinct is the right instinct? If you don't have something higher to appeal to, some sort of uh, more absolute, something that is transcendent, some sort of transcendent value, some sort of objective value, you can't really decide from one instinct to another. Economic value could be another one. Utilitarianism, that which is best for the greatest number. But who gets to decide who the greatest number is? And all of a sudden, you've got some people benefiting and other people marginalized. And he goes on to say, either we are rational spirit obliged forever to obey the absolute values of the Tao, or else we are mere nature to be needed and cut into new shapes for the pleasure of masters who must, by hypothesis, have no motive for their own natural impulses. Only the Tao provides a common human law of action which can overarch rulers and ruled alike. A dogmatic belief and objective value is necessary to the very idea of a rule which is not tyranny or an obedience which is not slavery. A lot of times we'll get in arguments about aesthetic things, and we're championing a self-referential approach rather than saying, you know what, I'm really not sure. I don't know if that's beautiful or not. Tell me what you see, and let's have a discussion. But we become arrogant about these sorts of things. So let me now move from his objective approach to understanding truth, to an application to beauty. Lewis wrote in an essay he, he uh, penned called De Futilitate, of the Feudal There is no reason why our reaction to a beautiful landscape should not be the response, however humanly blurred and partial, to something that is really there. And how do I describe that thing? Both Thomas Aquinas and C.S. Lewis make this distinction. Objective beauty they call admirable. So let me see if I can erase this now for a minute. If there is objective beauty, they define these terms this way so we could start to talk about it in a way that makes sense. So admirable beauty... that one's not so good. Admirable beauty... And enjoyable. This is in the object whether I see it or not. This should be my response to that object if I'm just and rendering to the thing it's due. So you see the objective play between the subject of appreciation and the objective uh, um, uh, reality. And, and in light of that, um, they would say that... A beauty is a thing which is pleasing when seen. It's enjoyable. Some perception may occur instantly, even before the capacity to describe and explain occurs. C.S. Lewis said this uh, in his Surprised by Joy, his autobiography, I never saw a beautiful building. I never knew a building could be beautiful. He says this about his childhood. I have spent two and a half hours combing all through his boyhood home taking surprise by joy, looking out the windows and seeing what he said he saw from those windows. His window looked out on the Belfast Lock. You could see, he could watch them construct the Titanic when it was being built. It's interesting. He saw these mountains that were off in the distance and so on, and the Hollywood Hills, off in the distance, about probably a mile and a half, but his little legs couldn't motor that far, and it taught him longing, something far away. But while he was in in that house, he said he never saw a beautiful building. I went in that house. It was one of the most beautiful houses I've ever seen. And I walked in. The entryway was about as big as that whole part of the room from where you're sitting, right there. You walked in, and as soon as you walked in, there was a a fireplace, a walk-in fireplace on the one wall. And it was it was huge, and it had uh, cobalt blue tile and bronze. His dad had it built in Norway and shipped to the building of this house. This is stunningly beautiful. There was a wind up stairway that went up to the second floor. It was all dark Mediterranean wood, and it had this almost cathedral atmosphere. You know how they have the dark windows at the lower parts of the cathedral, the cumbersome stones, and you have the light, airy windows higher, and you just have this uplift, and there was no roof over the entry. It went all the way up to the second floor. It was breathtaking. What did I think when I walked in there? He said he never saw a beautiful building. What's that about? He then says, The first beauty I ever saw was when my brother brought a toy garden into the nursery that he made on the lid of a cookie tin. He said, what all the real gardens failed to do for me, that garden did. Well, that's interesting. The beauty was in the gardens. The beauty was in the buildings. But it was at that moment that God sort of wooed him to see for the first time an interest in beauty that would then carry on as he would begin to have this longing develop in him and looking for the object of his deepest longing. This is great. And I think that he came to the place where he was able then, from that toy garden, to begin to see the beauty in other gardens, to maybe begin to see the beauty in buildings, to be able to see the beauty in literature, to be able to see the beauty in art. But it usually starts slow. I'm sure all of you have had experiences like this. I used to do work behind the Iron Curtain, and I would teach in these underground schools. And I remember being behind the Iron Curtain for a month. I was hassled by the secret police in Romania for about six to eight hours one time. It was horrible. The Christians I met there, I didn't feel like I deserved to breathe the same air they breathed because of how they had followed Christ in difficult and sometimes torturous situations. I was amazed at the beauty of these people, but I hated working behind the Iron Curtain. I've seen some things worse. I've worked in uh, Sharia law Muslim countries that were more oppressive even than the communist countries. But nevertheless, I'm in Eastern Europe for a month. My family was away from me. I was homesick, and it was just terrible. And I get to Prague, and I have a half a day finally by myself And I'm wandering around that glorious city and I go walking up the hill to St. Vita's Cathedral that dominates that city, overlooks the Moldau as it winds through the city. And I go into St. Vita's and I see the most glorious stained glass windows I've ever seen in my life. And I come to the third window on the left and it was Alphonse Mucha's window of how Christianity came to the Slavic people. Cyril and Methodius, the two Slavic uh, monks, brought it, and and they're the ones that led Wenceslaus to Christ, the first Slavic king who was a Christian. But the color, I look at this thing, I'm going, oh, my heavens, and I just sat down in front of it for about an hour just looking at it. I've been back to that window at least 12 times every time I'm in that part of the world. Another experience, I was in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. I'm there with my wife and good friends, Mark and Mary uh, Lewis, professor at Wheaton. And we're going through the museum. I'd never been there before. And I'm walking through, and I come to Van Gogh's, "Cypresses in a wheat field. I'm saying, oh, my heavens. I'd never seen a painting like this before. And I just stood right in front of it. And I I realized after about 20 minutes, I was hogging the central place in front of that painting. Other people were trying to get in to see it, and I felt bad. So I backed up, and somebody had put a bench there. And I sat down on the bench. I was grateful for whoever put it there. And I sat there for about another 20 minutes. And I go, wait a minute, I'm with Claudia and Mark and Mary. Where are they? You know how art museums have those wide doors that you could see from one room to the next and so on? And I look that way. I don't see them. I look this way, I don't see them. You know what else I didn't see? A bench. Enough people must have had that experience with the objective beauty of that particular painting that they had the same subjective response. And Somebody said, we should put a bench there for these people. I've been back to see that painting many times. Now there's benches in front of lots of paintings, but back then there was only one bench. And I've got another example, Breton's Song of the Lark at the Chicago Art Institute. I don't know if you've seen it before. I don't have time to really go into it. But I just need to say, some perception may come upon us slowly. Some perception may come upon us unexpectedly. Lewis's Toy Garden, Mooka's Window at St. Vita's, and so on. But always, when the beauty breaks through, you have to believe there's an object of reality beyond the thing itself that the God of the universe is wooing us through that beauty. He wants to communicate to us something. So some perception may come on us slowly, and if beauty is objective, expert opinion may help to increase perception and appreciation. My wife took a course on Picasso one time, and I said to her, oh, Picasso was an idiot. She said, really, what do you know about Picasso? I didn't know anything. I'm making a judgment without objective verification. She said, well, the first thing we need to do then since you don't know anything about him is see if we could re-navigate who the idiot is here (laughs) and then see if that idiot idiot is educable. So she took me down to the Chicago Art Institute where they had this big Picasso exhibit and she's walking me through having some knowledge about this stuff. She's explaining it to me and I'm going, oh, wow, I I spoke too soon. She says, yeah, that's true. It's not an uncommon thing for you, Jerry. And then one time we were in Barcelona, Spain, and they have the Picasso Museum there. And we went there, and it blew me away. He's not my favorite artist, but I would never make a judgment that this guy didn't have a grasp of something. And therefore, I would say to you, expert opinion can be helpful to us. Now, I'm going to ask you a question about this. in just a minute and as soon as you see it I want you to shout out your answer. How many squares do you see there? 16, 17. 22, 16, 17. There's a lot. A lot. 21, 21. You're all looking at the same thing and coming up with different judgments. There's an objective reality there, but your subjective responses are very different. It's the same thing with looking at beauty, same thing with looking at paintings. How many squares are there? How many? 27. Would you say again? 30. You're right. 16 little ones, one big one. That's 17. Squares of 4, 17, 18. 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 squares of 9, 27, 28, 29, 30, 30 squares. And you see it now. So your subjective capacity has come to grips with the objective reality. It's like we just sat in a Norm Daniels painting class or something like that, you know. So so this is the key, I think. On this matter, philosopher Mortimer Adler wrote, Men differ in the degree to which they possess good perception and sound critical judgment, even as objects differ to the degree in which they possess the elements of beauty. Once again, in the controversy concerning the objectivity or subjectivity of beauty, there seems to be a middle ground between the two extreme positions which insists upon a beauty intrinsic to the object but does not deny the relevances of differences in individual sensibility. If somebody doesn't see it the way you see it, don't beat them up. Stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Describe and define what you see that they can maybe catch up or maybe they see something you don't see say tell me about that tell me what you see and so on can i let's show you how it works can i say with credit that prague is the most beautiful city in the world why not i haven't been to every city in the world the statement lacks credit because there's no objective reality that supports the claim can i say prague is the most beautiful city I've ever seen. Yes, I can say that, but does it have credit? What has to happen for it to have credit? Yeah, you got to ask me about what other cities I've seen. And if I say, well, I've seen Barstow, California, (laughs) it doesn't have much credit, you see. But if I start talking to you about Salzburg or Cape Town or Quebec City, or if I talk to you about some of these cities that we've seen over the years Then all of a sudden, when I say Prague was the most beautiful I ever saw, it seems to have some credit, but not complete credit, what's lacking? I need to give you a definition of beauty, and I need to see how it applies to a city. And if I can't do that, I'm reduced to simply saying, I like Prague. And there's nothing wrong with saying I like Prague. But a lot of times we're not content with that. We start to tyrannize people by telling them things and we don't have the authority to speak it because we haven't thought about the objective reality. So this, I think, is important for us. And in matters of beauty, it's easy to let subjectivism roam free without the checks of objective reality and the dangers abound. Lewis observed that subjectivism is a potential step even towards evil, self-referential. Sin, man playing God of his own life, and my sort of sinfulness beginning to be expressed by my having to have you see it the way I see, even though there's not an objective reality to support the claim. It's inflated, self-referential. It's anarchy of thought that, if empowered, leads to tyranny of thought and pride. Pride. The antidote to subjectivism and pride is humility. A synonym for humility is honesty. And the cloud of unknowing, this wonderful medieval book. um, We we know a monk wrote it. It was written, I think, around the 13th century. We don't even know who the monk was. He didn't put his name on the book, not because he was ashamed, but because he wasn't trying to sell himself. You see people who write books now, and they've got to go on these book signing tours and all that stuff. And sometimes the books are pretty bad, but the marketing is great. And here's a guy who didn't even put his name on the book. And he writes in there about humility. And he says, I think two things cause humility. Number one is an honest awareness of oneself as one really is. Because if a person truly knew himself, he would be humble. And second is an honest awareness of God as best any mortal might know him, before whom all nature trembles and all scholars and kings are fools. Sometimes we assert these things and we don't realize we're moving towards an arrogance and a pride. But if there's humility that comes up and somebody says something different than us, I don't know about you guys. I'm a five-point Calvinist Quaker. I think I'm the only one in the world. So I assume that I'm probably wrong. So it helps with me with my hermeneutical suspicion. If somebody disagrees with me, I go, oh, they might be right. And I say, tell me what you see. And and if they can't describe it well, then maybe I enter into dialogue with them and dialectic with them. Or if they do describe it well, I, because I entered in with the possibility I could be wrong, I become teachable and I grow and I gain a perspective I wouldn't have gotten before. And so I think this coupling of humility with the way we approach these things is really important. If there is an objectivity to beauty... If there's admirable beauty, what are the definable and descriptive characteristics? We could assume then that if there's admirable beauty, there must be things that we can see intrinsic to the object that could be defined and could be um, demonstrated. So Bruce Edwards, he was a great C.S. Lewis scholar, he said, All academic endeavor seeks to see patterns and exceptions. If I can't look at a bunch of particulars and abstract from them some generalization, I can never pass on a body of knowledge. But if I account for all the exceptions, uh, if I don't account for some exceptions, the abstraction is always false. It's a generalization, a general understanding. This foundational approach to objectivity and beauty is a general understanding, a foundational thing that then can be applied as we look at different forms of art. But what would be the characteristics then of beauty. And Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologica, he's looking at a bunch of particulars and he's trying to abstract from them things that he would see. And basically, he said they were these. Beauty includes three conditions, he wrote. Integrity or perfection, since those things which are impaired are by the very fact ugly. Due proportion or harmony. And lastly, brightness or clarity once things are called beautiful which have an elegant color. So integrity or perfection, proportion or harmony, brightness and clarity. So we have an idea maybe of Christmas tree-ness. If you're Aristotelian, it's because you've seen a lot of particular trees and you've abstracted what you think a tree should look like. If you're Platonic, you think maybe the ideals have come down and you have these intrinsic or intuitive understandings of what a tree is. But we all apply something of our understanding of the beauty when we go to buy a Christmas tree. Which one do you buy? Do you buy that one? If you're if you're if you're doing a production, where's our film guy? Eric, where are you? Oh, there you go. Are you doing Are you doing a, a Charlie Brown Christmas Carol uh, production? No, it, that might be good for that one. But you buy this tree. Why? Because you have an understanding of beauty when it relates to Christmas tree. There's an integrity to it. You buy a pumpkin. Do you buy a deformed pumpkin or do you buy a plump, nice pumpkin? You see a swirl cactus. Do you get this one that you really like when you go in the desert? Or do you get the one that looks like this? You have an understanding of integrity when it comes to that thing. But, but, But the thing is, though, Baron von Hugel once said, beware of the first clarity, press on to the second clarity. There may be some things that you never expected, and the artist brings a perspective to the integrity that you hadn't thought about before. So you don't rush to judgment. You got the painting, Marcel Duchamp's Nude Descending a Staircase. This is one of my favorite paintings. This is a painting that was considered the first work in modern art. It was done in 1905. Marcel Duchamp did it, and he met with all kinds of criticism because he says, what is that? How is that a nude, you know? And what is this nude descending a staircase and stuff like that? He's not interested in the integrity of the nude. What's he interested in the integrity of? Descent. Movement. And Duchamp, movie cameras had just started coming out. He got frames of a person descending a staircase. He laid all the frames on one flat space and he tried to capture movement in a single frame. And it is glorious. It has integrity. But you might not have thought that because you look at it and you don't understand what he was doing, and we see integrity from a different angle. Then you've got proportion. So integrity Thank you for, for that on the you could leave that up there. It's really beautiful. They'll, they'll appreciate it, I think. So OK, then you've got proportion. And you think about a child who brings home the picture that's only going to make it on your refrigerator. It would never make it in an art museum. And it's all cramped and everything's over here and all the rest of the space is there. I remember when I was in first grade, Mrs. Reinhardt's class, and she wanted us to draw pictures. You know those All About Me books you did in first grade? And the first page is a picture of you and it's just got like my big head on the front page. I still have the book. Big head. Second page, you're supposed to draw your parents. So I draw my parents. They took up half a page. Next page, I have to draw my siblings. They were like little ants. I was so self-referential. So I'm done. And Mrs. Reinhardt said, uh, I said, Mrs. Reinhardt, I'm done. I'm done. And she said, well, we've still got more time, Jerry. You need to draw another picture. What should I draw? Something you like. So I drew an airplane. I'm done, Mrs. Reinhardt, I'm done. She said, Jerry, there's still more time. You need to draw something else. I wasn't very creative. I went and drew three airplanes. And I said, Mrs. Reinhardt, I'm done, I'm done. She said, Jerry, there's still time. you got to draw something else. What should I draw? I drew time. Oops. That's not going in an art museum unless it's classified with Salvador Dali and his, and, his, and his work and so on. It lacked proportion. So I think I have an idea that proportion helps me see an objective feature of beauty, but then all of a sudden you get an artist who's so creative, and they're looking at something, and they see a completely different angle than we see. And So you've got Picasso. What is it? Somebody's sitting down. But look how he used all of that, that. That's he brought with just barely lines on the side. He brings this creative thing, and he ends up filling in the whole space with just little lines. What a creative expression, proportion. And then we have brightness and clarity. Brightness and clarity. Color. So, you think about your experiences in that area. Oh, I want to say something else too about human beauty, because I, I, I forgot this one in the realm of integrity. Um, honest and objective judgments must account for the complexities of what it means to be human. Um, and we have to account not only for physical beauty, but also for issues of character. I, I know a woman, um, she, got, she was from Austria, she got married. And she was um, in her car. Her mother was coming to visit her from Austria. And she was rear-ended by a fuel truck. And her car was aflame. She woke up in the hospital and found out her mother had died. She had lost her arm. She had also lost her face. Her whole face had been burned off. She had 70 constructive surgeries to give her something that looked like Freddy Krueger, if you remember that. And, and this woman was, was ugly. It's the only way you could put it. But she responded to that accident in a way that was heroic and courageous. And she realized with her, with her um, disability, it gave her the opportunity to cultivate empathy so that she could go and minister to other people. And I would go with her to a rehabilitation hospital maybe once or twice a month. And I would see her go up to a hospital bed of some young guy, maybe, who's 26, 27, who was in a car accident, who had no use of his legs ever again. Looking out the window with tears in his eyes, she would walk up and she would say, you know there's still hope for you. And the guy would turn and look, and they would believe her. And this woman cultivated courage. She cultivated empathy. She cultivated credit. And she was one of the most beautiful women I had ever seen, not from facial expressions. She was ugly. But because humans are more than just their appearance. Um, I'll give you another example quickly. On Look at Mother Teresa. She wasn't going to win any beauty contests. But what a beautiful thing. Malcolm Muggeridge wrote the book, Something Beautiful for God About Her. I had a student... One time, and, and, and I, he was a black student from inner city, and I said, where are you from? And he told me, and I said, how did you make it to Wheaton College? You're, you were in a rough area. How did you avoid being in the gangs? Were you in one of the gangs? He said, no, I wasn't. I said, how did you avoid it? He said, well, I didn't want to be in the gang. And so I put on a coat and tie, and I went to talk to the leader of the gang in our area. And I said, sir, he called him sir. I don't want to be in the gang. I want to study. And I'm wondering if I could have your permission not to be in the gang. And this guy said to the leader of the gang, said, you know what? You're smart. That might be your way out of this place. I'll make sure nobody messes with you. You go study. Now, that same gang leader would take a broken bottle and turn the glass in your face. Which one is true about him? Both. Both. There's something complex about what it is to be human, and you can see human beauty even in sometimes goofy places. I'll give you another example. guy, Conrad Monsanger, used to be the chief operating officer for Johnny and Friends. He was a friend of mine. He said one of the biggest groups he used to contract with Johnny and Friends for learning how to care for the disabled were the gangs in Los Angeles. Because if they got shot and they became a quadriplegic or something like that, the gang buddies wouldn't leave them. Human, hum, we make judgments about things, and sometimes we make the overarching judgment that's subjectivistic because it's not accounting for the objective reality. Last one's brightness and color. Um, reptiles. My kids used to collect snakes. And I don't know if you know this, but snakes have personalities. You have personalities with dogs and cats and stuff like that. They had a California king snake, and it was affectionate. When Grady would come home, he was the one who always fed it. The, this, the king snake would raise up out of his aquarium and want to come out, and Grady would get him and put him around his neck, and the, the snake would cuddle with him. It's crazy. And then we had a red rat snake that was beautiful with its patterns on its back, but it was persnickety. And then we had a we had a, a boa constrictor, and he was just doofus. He was not very... But, but the, the king snake was beautiful with its bands. The red rat snake was beautiful with its it's diamond patterns, and the, and, the, and the boa constrictor was gray, and it wasn't as beautiful. On a day, what day do you like most? Do you like a gray sky, a sheet of gray sky? Maybe if it's in the spring you like that because it rivets your attention to the flowers that are coming up after a long winter. But usually we don't like the sheet of gray. We prefer maybe a blue sky without any clouds, or even better, a blue sky where on the canvas of the blue are painted all kinds of clouds. And maybe you have clouds where the leading edge towards the sun looks like a ribbon of gold, and then white. And then you've got dove, and you've got ivory as it drifts towards the gray trailing side. Or maybe, which do you prefer? The sunset, where the setting sun is reflected on those clouds, and you see colors of apricot and salmon and shrimp and orange and gold and yellow. And maybe sometimes you'll get a hint of red and also maybe even magenta. You've seen those days. You drive down the street and you see a bunch of people and they're looking westward. And you go, what are they looking at? And you get out of your car. And it's the most glorious sunset you've ever seen in your life. Or you see a bunch of people and they're out looking up in the sky and you say, what are they looking at? You get out of your car. And you see a double rainbow across the whole sky. And you know which one you like because of the brightness and the color. And if you're standing next to a bunch of people and they're looking at that and they, somebody says to you, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen in my life. You start laughing because of the incongruity of the statement with the objective reality. So those are the kinds of things that Lewis talks about. Those are the kinds of things that we can know about. And, and consequently, that will help us make objective judgments about beauty. That's it, we're done.